The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox. We've got Jeff Cutmore in St. Petersburg and Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick, here in London. These are your headlines. Fiat Chrysler abandons its 33 billion euro offer for Renault of blaming French political conditions for thwarting the merger of equals, which would have created the world's third largest automaker. U.S. stocks extend their rally on hopes for a Fed rate cut, but Asian shares trade cautiously after U.S. and Mexican officials failed to reach a deal on tariffs. President Trump tells Ireland Brexit will work out just fine and says Dublin shares U.S. concerns over Huawei while meeting with Prime Minister Leo Varadkar. He now heads to Normandy to join other world leaders in D-Day commemorations. Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Savini says his country doesn't need the EU's money after Brussels warns the Italian government that it could face disciplinary action if it continues breaching debt rules. And while President Trump may be in Europe, the Chinese President Xi Jinping is here in Russia talking about raising the relationship between these two countries to a higher level. He called President Putin his best and bosom friend, and the deals are already being signed. Huawei and MTS inking a deal to roll out 5G in Russia. Right, so we've got so many huge stories lined up for you today. Plus, of course, we've got uh, reporters in Normandy and indeed in Ireland as well to follow um, events around D-Day, which, of course, it is the 75th commemoration of today, uh, and indeed to follow Mr Trump's visit to Europe. But let's go back to one of our main corporate stories. Uh, Fiat Chrysler has withdrawn its offer to merge with France's Renault. In a statement, Fiat blamed the, quote, political conditions in France for scuttling the 33 billion euro deal, which would have created the third largest car maker in the world. Fiat added that it remains convinced that the proposal was both, quote, compelling and transformational. The news comes after Renault's board failed to make a decision on the Fiat offer after meeting last night. I'm told it was a six hour meeting. Uh, Renault said the French government which owns a 15% stake in the car maker, wanted to postpone a vote on the proposal. Reports say Paris wanted to delay the merger until Nissan guaranteed its long-held alliance with Renault would continue following the French uh, the tie-up between the French and Italian companies. Uh, French officials were not immediately available for comment, whilst Nissan declined to comment on this as well. Meanwhile, shares in Nissan have dipped following Fiat's announcement. Um, uh, right, are we going to move on to... OK. I just wanted to pick up on some of the points that have been raised. I mean, we saw yesterday very early on Bruno Le Maire out on the wires being quoted about what he wanted out of this deal in particular, didn't want any jobs to be lost from France. So that was a, a real line in the There'll sand. There'll be a lot of jobs lost from France if they don't revolutionise their company, won't they? Well, that's the point. I mean, long term, you understand what the ramifications here. But uh, he said uh, the, the red lines as 
jobs in France. He also wanted some sort of operating headquarters in Paris and a dividend for shareholders on the French side. But uh, all this seemed to be just too much of a stumbling block in the meeting and eventually Look, the French no will not vote on the government deal. will win votes by cutting jobs or allowing jobs to be lost. But governments will win votes if they create the conditionality. And this is where you and I, funnily enough, uh, ahead of this, had, had a, a short crossing of swords yesterday. No, governments create the conditions for businesses to thrive. Should governments be in those private sector businesses? I have a big problem with the second part, but I do believe creating the conditionality for companies to thrive is absolutely key. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, we and, and there is a brilliant read, and I, I, I shout out to other good news organisations where I see good reads as well. There's a long read by Peter Campbell, who is the motor industry correspondent uh, over at the Financial Times, and he wrote a piece in March talking about the desperation that this sector has uh, for some form of consolidation, how Mr Marchioni said that this is how it has to be before, of course, uh, he passed away and was trying to pursue this for FCA. John Elkin picking up the, 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 um, the baton there uh, for consolidation because the costs are going through the roof for this industry. Raw material costs are high. The desperation for more capital because they are spending hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in trying to find new models, having seen the ice engine and the diesel particularly seeing a very swift demise in the eyes of consumers and indeed in regulators as well. Uh, a whole host of issues, but having governments and families thwarting consolidation uh, is ruinous for the car industry. I'm not going to challenge you on the need for consolidation because I think that's pretty evident. You can see it in the share price reaction why investors were so thrilled that there might be a consolidation attempt. But if you think about some of those stumbling blocks, uh, so many different partners in the room. Uh, Nissan had been a long-term partner sure. of the alliance. So effectively, they were not on board. We're not happy to be voting in favour of this alliance. So what, you torture relationship with the Japanese in the process of trying to consolidate. So that, I think, was a thorny issue for the French maybe to, to show faith in, in, in a Japanese friendship. So, so one issue. The other issue is this reminds me of the Deutsche Bank, Commerce Bank consolidation attempts. Mm. The market wants something to happen to get uh, the sector out of a rut. But the hope now for the sector and consolidation more broadly, you'd have to say, does it fade with this deal not progressing, which might be a broader headwind for the auto sector? The other point I'll raise, and you've mentioned some of the fantastic articles, what's not really cropped up is the why. Why would the French government not be supportive of this deal, seemingly trying to push it forward? One reason that I may have, we have a very interesting window now on the back of the European elections, about nine months clear of any local elections, where Macron has to push through some very thorny reforms, one being on the unemployment insurance and the other being on the pension system. Mm. Issues that could cause a showdown with unions, already one of the major trade unions is setting to the scene for a huge protest. And also on the employer side, because Macron may have to punish employers if they keep on persisting with short-term contracts. So a very dicey situation, and perhaps this is just one fight too many yeah. for the government to have at this stage. And maybe the French government doesn't like the dilution effect. And we, we talked about the stake held uh, by the French government in Renault. Of course, if you become a 50-50 partner in a much larger entity, then you have a 50% dilution of your sway of your stakes. If you go from 15% down to 7.5%, you have a lot less sway on the broader destiny of the company as well. So maybe they dislike that. But guarantee 
guaranteeing jobs in one uh, geographical jurisdiction in a capital intensive, labor intensive, high cost. I mean, the margins per vehicle, and I, and I, I had a disagreement with one of the analysts about this, but you can take the measure. It's, it's between 5 and 7%, maybe 10% on some of these vehicles as well. They are not making a lot of margins over at the OEMs as well. And that is why this sector, bringing it back to our wheelhouse, trades at such a lowly discount. You can basically look at them trading at around a third to a half, depending on the company, of the mean level of PE of any index. So for instance, if the uh, DAX is trading at 15 times, you'll see the auto sector and the auto components within that trading at five to seven times. It is a very lowly rating and for good reason. So where do we look now in the auto space? I mean, these were, were two interesting players because it was cross-border, mm. but the same issues if you try to even consolidate within borders on the protection I, I of jobs very would start point. to crop up. I think you make an excellent point. I think you look at who's spending the money and who's spending the money wisely because there are a huge amount. Again, I refer to the FT article and other articles made, made the good point as well that the amount of capital that is going into this sector at the moment on the electrification of the, the vehicle model offering, the EV from ICE, is hundreds of billions of dollars. Volkswagen alone spending $50 billion. Think of that. $50 billion on this revamp and this ID program where we're going to start seeing the rollout as well. You have to look to the companies that are spending the capital, don't you? Because those who sit by ICE and sit by some old hybrids which really don't perform, they're toast, aren't well, they? Well, that's the problem. Then investors are asked to sit here for the long haul and just reach back into their pockets to fund the reinvestment with very low promises short term. Or, or do you and go to the companies that have challenge. got the electrification, such as Tesla, <laughs> which right. have such huge capital concerns and concerns about their rollout of the model and distractions for the management team? Right, and try and consolidate it. Uh, let's just take the story in a different direction. As uh, the wife of former Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn says, the automaker. Or orchestrated her husband's arrest for uh, to block a merger with the alliance partner Renault. Speaking exclusively to Sarah Eisen, Caroline Ghosn said Nissan plotted against her husband. We know it's a conspiracy. Nissan did not want this merger. A few people within Nissan decided to get rid of my husband, that that was the easiest way not to do the merger. But I mean, it didn't have to be. They, there was a, maybe a more civilized way of doing it. And now that you see the proposed Fiat-Renault merger? N now, I mean, it, it's clear how Nissan doesn't want to be involved and they want nothing to do with it. I mean, I think with time, we will be, see more clarity on this story. And people now realize that there, this was a conspiracy against my husband. A Nissan spokesperson rejected the claims, saying Ghosn's misconduct was, quote, the sole source of this chain of events. And we have uh, some news crossing, I believe, from uh, a bank in France uh, as we kick off <laughs> yes, the morning. We do. <laughs> well, thank you, Karen. Right, OK, let's take a look at uh, Credit Agricole, whose uh, numbers are hitting the wire as we speak. Right, targets net profit above €5 billion Euros in 2022, up from €4.4 billion Euros in 2018. Targets return on tangible equity of 11% in 2022, uh, down from 12.7% in 28. Hang on a second. They go backwards on their road. We were very happy with the 12.7 figure uh, in 2018, but they're saying it's going to hit down, get back down to 2022, albeit double digits. So I think many investors will take that. Um, common equity tier one uh, ratio, seen 11% in 2022. Again, down from 11.5% this year. Some of these measures seem to be going in the wrong direction. Uh, anyway, targets net profit growth of 3% per annum until 2022. Cash dividend worth 50% of profits. And new targets after meeting previous year's target. And you can see Credit Agricole shares 
over the last three months, in common with a lot of the European markets, have been down, uh, in this case, around 6%. I thought it was a fascinating batch of data yesterday, Karen. I'd like a chance to speak to you with that, and I know we speak to uh, Hans Redeker about it as well. But the slam-dunk terrible figure was the ADP. Mm. But there are a lot of... Um, extrapolations which are being made, which I think have gone too far on the back of that weak figure. Yes, two very mixed pieces coming through that Steve's referring to. The ADP numbers uh, showing private payrolls increased by just 27,000 in May, well below what the economists had marked into their books of 173,000. So very underwhelming on the headline print. But it was the ISM non-manufacturing data a lot of investors had been waiting to see. And when it crossed, it was better than expected. The pace of growth was much faster, so suggesting that the manufacturing weakness has not really spilt right across to the services side. So the ISM uh, non-manufacturing index rising to 56.9 in May from 55.5. And that's not a bad handle when you consider some of the weakness we're seeing in other pockets of the economy. Now, the market reaction, well, it was a little mixed. And uh, when it came to the ISM, you saw some of the, the losses on the short end. The US two-year yield start to re reverse as they picked up. And investors have been all week now positioning around a Fed offering more help. We've had a series of comments from James Bullard to start out the week talking about potentially more stimulus required from the Fed and then Jay Powell also staying on script, moving away from being patient, talking about being more responsive uh, given the trade fight that's played out. And uh, what has this meant for markets? Well, it has meant uh, the best two-day gain we've had since January for major averages. The Dow up eight-tenths of a percent and keeping pace with the S&P 500, a little bit behind the Nasdaq, uh, reflecting that some of the appetite this time around wasn't necessarily just technology. It was real estate and utilities, some of the interest rate sensitive parts of the market. I would just point out energy is still lagging. And that does tell you a story around uh, some of the question marks around cyclicals that are still related to the demand side. So energy has been fading. Meantime, the U.S. yields, I mentioned there was a bit of movement around that uh, U.S. two-year yield based on the data. And this morning's session, we started out at 1.82%, but uh, still around these fairly low levels at 2.11 on the U.S. 10-year yield as well. Uh, the dollar crosses uh, as a result uh, as we uh, move throughout the morning session. Dollar is firmer to the yuan. It uh, is suffering to an extent versus the safe haven Japanese yen, that uh, yen picking up uh, just over two-tenths of a percent to the dollar. Sterling and euro also trying to claw back uh, some of their recent losses in, in recent weeks to the US dollar. In terms of the energy trade, let's just delve into this trade a little bit more because you can see the levels on the chart on Brent. At 60 is the handle. We've uh, tracked up a little bit this morning, about a quarter of a percent, also on WTI, which has helped us get close to that 52 handle. But uh, what we have in these markets, the EIA reported the largest buildup in crude oil and oil product inventories since 1990. So investors very much looking at the supply side of the equation in the last 24 hours, along with the demand, the issues that have been there for the last couple of weeks on tariff talk. Meantime, on Asian markets, uh, let's just see how we're starting out this session across some of these markets. Seems to be a bit of caution because we've had more of an update on Mexican negotiations on tariffs that are not going anywhere fast. And the market had hoped maybe there would be some progress between negotiators. So as we digest that snippet of news, you can see the Chinese market reversing modestly firm for some of the other key markets. Nikkei trades up two-tenths of a percent. Quick look at the opening calls here in Europe ahead of the session. Patchy, you can see the DAX showing us a, a red arrow and also grinding south before the start. The Italian market and on its indications, a pop of green for the UK market, but not much if you're looking for upside in this market. This That's morning, the Italian, we didn't need your EU money market, yeah? That right. One.
that one which has had uh, 2.53% uh, bond yields and we on, the, the on the back of the great of dynamics of the Italian economy as opposed to the support mechanism put in place by the ECB and the EU. Absolutely, a stronger hand than Matteo Just as long as I know which has. Italian market right. we're talking about. Good, right. Mr Salvini, good morning to you. I know you watch... Uh, the bond market's very early on. You should watch us as well. We, uh, we have some interesting comments today. Uh, President Trump has said, quote, not nearly enough progress has been made in talks between the U.S. and Mexican officials. Discussions are set to continue today after yesterday's meeting over migration and Trump's threatened tariffs ended without a breakthrough. Kayla Tausche reports from Washington. A highly anticipated meeting between U.S. and Mexican officials broke after nearly 90 minutes with no deal, according to NBC News. For nearly a week, the White House has been asking Mexico to do more to secure the southern border. Otherwise, tariffs would take effect on all Mexican goods coming into the U.S. on June 10th. The meeting took place at the White House, and the U.S. was represented by the vice president, the secretary of state, and the acting secretary of Homeland Security. Mexico's top officials were there as well and spoke at a press conference shortly thereafter. We don't discuss the tariffs, like uh, as a tariffs. Uh, the dialogue was focused on migration flows and what Mexico are doing or is proposing to the United States. Our concern about Central America situation right now, and so it's difficult to evaluate what the, the position of the vice president or the secretary of state is about the tariffs because wasn't in this occasion the main issue. Expected that White House officials will brief President Trump on progress, if any, that was made during the meeting, and next steps will be figured out from there. Kayla Tausche, CNBC Business News, Washington. The Mexican peso slid as much as 1.3 against the dollar after ratings agencies delivered the country a double blow. Fitch cut Mexico's sovereign debt rating to triple B due to increased risks around trade tensions and heavily indebted state oil company Pemex. Meanwhile, Moody's downgraded its outlook on the country to negative, citing, quote, less predictable policy making. Meantime, Christine Lagarde says she doesn't see a global recession brought on by a widening trade war. But in an interview with Reuters, the IMF managing director warned that an escalation in tariffs between the U.S. and China would hurt already fragile growth in 2020. Uh, coming up on this show, following President Trump on his European tour, we'll be live from Shannon and Normandy after the break. President Trump and the Irish Taoiseach Leo Varadkar say they share similar worries over security threats posed by Chinese tech giant Huawei. Uh, Willem, this is actually really interesting because one thing that um, previous administrations and, of course, I'm sure the current Taoiseach pride themselves on uh, is their ability to attract international technology companies, especially U.S. technology companies, and create hubs uh, from Cork all the way up to Dublin. So the Irish have got a real stake in this game, haven't they? Good morning to you. Yeah, they've got a huge stake and they've got huge U.S. investment here. But in terms of Huawei, the company's been at pains to point out earlier this year, they've spent tens of millions of euros on R&D here in the Irish Republic. And at least two of Ireland's major mobile phone providers actually are looking to use Huawei technology as they prepare to roll out 5G connectivity in parts of the country later this year. That is not something that's going to go away. And yet President Trump, of course, and his administration have been pushing allies around the world to reconsider 
their use of Huawei technology. The UK has already reduced it down to what's called non-core infrastructure. President Trump talked about that earlier this week in London. He was asked here yesterday at Shannon Airport when he arrived to meet Mr. Radker whether he was concerned that the Irish were not concerned. We deal very closely, as you know, with your intelligence and your security, and we're working on that together. And I know you're concerned, like we're concerned. We're all concerned about it. So oh, uh, we'll have it. That's, right. that's something that the Irish government uh, is concerned about as well. And uh, uh, we've been offered some uh, further briefings, information from right. the US side, just to give us um, a security briefing on that. And uh, we'll do our own security analysis first, and then at a European level. But uh, it is something that we're also concerned about. We're working on that together very much with not only Europe, but with uh, with Ireland. Another topic that came up in their conversation was, of course, Brexit. The president was very, very keen to point out that as far as he was concerned, that the wall, uh, the border between the two countries was not going to be a concern. He thought it would all work out, quote, fine, and that Brexit potentially would be, quote, very, very good for Ireland. Of course, the OECD has pointed out that a disorderly Brexit could prompt a recession here. The Irish Finance Minister, Pascal Donoghue, telling us yesterday that he was very concerned. It was a key challenge to the Irish economy. And one other final topic that came up, of course, guess what? It was all about trade and the relationship between the two countries. And if you look at the numbers, you mentioned earlier, Steve, the investment level when it comes to US firms here. If you look at the numbers between the two countries, the Irish have a huge, huge trading relationship with the US in terms of their deficit focused on services. That's something they've been keen to point out to the US administration, given there is a surplus when it comes to goods. That could be one of the reasons the US Treasury has put them on an economic watch list. And that no doubt is a concern to the likes of Mr. Varadkar. It certainly seemed to be a concern to Mr. Donoghue, the Irish finance minister, when we spoke to him yesterday. Willem, thank you very much for the coverage there. Meantime, President Trump will be on his way to Normandy for the second day of commemorations, marking the 75th D-Day anniversary. There he'll be joined by French President Emmanuel Macron and British Prime Minister Theresa May. Trump marked yesterday's ceremony in Portsmouth by reading a prayer that President Franklin Roosevelt recited when he addressed to the U.S. for the first time following the Normandy invasion. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Well, Hadley joins us from Normandy with more. Hadley, set the scene for us on the commemorations today. Hey, good morning, Karen. I thought it was really interesting yesterday that U.S. President Donald Trump there, as you mentioned, um, quoting FDR, another president, though, from a different party who, as you very well know, was often accused of overriding the other exec the other offices in terms of the Justice Department and Congress as well. So something that they seem, at least on the side of it, to have in common. So later today, as you know, U.S. President Donald Trump will be joined by French President Emmanuel Macron in the ceremony commemorating the 75th anniversary of D-Day, known as the longest 
today. This was uh, the Great Crusade, according uh, to General Dwight D. Eisenhower. 160,000 members of the Allied Expeditionary Forces uh, traveling just over the English Channel by sea, by land, by air, and they were all of them trying to find a way to gain a foothold in Europe. By the end of the day, as you may know, some 4,400 had died. And behind me, as you can see, we're here at the American Cemetery in Coville-sur-Mer. There are over 9,000 Americans buried here. One of the things that we'll be watching very closely, of course, is that politics surrounding uh, the leadership that we'll be seeing here on the ground, whether it be Mr. Macron, Mr. Trump as well, uh, Angela Merkel, what those politics uh, are really going to mean as the day goes forward. Because as we know, uh, the presidents of France and the United States are going to be having a meeting on the sidelines of this commemoration. You'll remember quite famously last year, uh, President Trump uh, was uh, flogged by many in the media, not just in the Western press, but globally when he decided not to attend the full services uh, for the anniversary of D-Day last year. So a lot of eyes will be focused on the president and on his carriage and dignity at such an important event, because as you probably know, this is the 75th anniversary of these D-Day landings, and many of the folks uh, who were involved in uh, the invasion of France and they were involved uh, in the end of World War II are no longer with us. So the remaining folks that are here are going to be getting a lot of attention. We've already seen them you know, flying out of planes and giving a lot of interviews, as you've probably seen. Uh, so there is a lot of momentum uh, surrounding this commemoration. Some 30,000 people are expected to be here over the course of the next several days uh, to commemorate this event. But certainly all eyes will be in the next couple of hours on U.S. President Donald Trump. Guys. Um, brilliant, Hadley. Thank you very much indeed. And I just say one of the most um, awe-inspiring places I've ever been was uh, the place where you are now, the U.S. Cemetery in Omaha Beach, is quite extraordinary. And if nobody, and you mentioned the longest day, I mean, if, nobody, if you haven't read The Longest Day, viewers, it is the most inspiring book. It's the only book I've ever read in one session. Right. Yeah. Page 10. Um, Cornelius Ryan. Yeah, it just, just, it's a very personal set of stories about the whole process of D-Day, but it is a, a brilliant story. And I think the book uh, was very well turned into screen as well. I mean, uh, as I say, anyone who's seen the Robert Mitchum impression or, or, or portrayal of uh, Colonel Norman Cota, I mean, it's, again... Or inspiring. It's funny how you, you talk over the, the history and, and everything that's been written down in books and then depicted back in, in pictures and, and put on the big screen. It, the whole point is to look back to history so you don't make the same mistakes in future. Yeah. And what you have are very key countries all gathered together today. And I, I wonder whether there is more accord down the track because of these commemorations that triggers some sort of reaching out uh, across to, uh, to world leaders sure. to, to connect on the big issues of, of the day. Yeah, it's not for me to lecture anyone, but if, if you think your life is tough, just go one day, stand on Omaha Beach and look up at that bluff and just how those lads got off the beach. Unbelievable. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.